It's Thursday the 5th of March and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, a crisis looms in Australian media as Newswire service, the AAP, announces its closure. Well, this is a test for the government because there was lots of hand-wringing and, and sadness displayed in the federal parliament when AAP's closure was announced. There wasn't too much practical assistance or help announced from the Australian government. We'll hear from Latika Burke, correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. Plus, what community groups and city planners might learn from a new highway project underway in Texas? And will sustainable fashion ever make the leap into the mainstream? I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. You might have heard that the New York Times is doing well. According to its new media columnist, Ben Smith, the paper now has more digital subscribers than the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and all 250 of the newspapers owned by Gannett combined. But as Smith argued in his debut op-ed for the Times, the success of his new employer might be coming at the expense of others. As the Times gets bigger, everything else, everywhere else, gets smaller. Of course, the Times isn't alone in its race to absorb competitors and grow. News organisations in Australia are taking advantage of recently relaxed media laws, which many are blaming, at least in part, for the demise of the country's biggest newswire service, the AAP. It's a sad day today because I want to acknowledge the AAP journalists who was here. Um, the AAP will not be operating here anymore and those journalists um, will be not, obviously not employed in those positions and we extend to them... To Founded by Keith Murdoch in 1935, the Australian Associated Press supplies journalism, broadcast scripts, photography and video to almost every major newspaper and broadcaster in Australia. Its 85-year history will come to an end in June. Latika Burke is a correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. So what you're seeing in Australia is one of the most concentrated media markets further concentrating. And this is because the government changed these laws, the Conservative government changed these laws a couple of years ago. And that allowed for the first time TV stations and newspapers to merge. And so what happened was there are basically two big newspaper outlets. One is the Murdoch Press and the other is, is my paper. Uh, the Murdoch Press bought Sky Television and then uh, in 2018 Sky Television stopped using AAP, the Newswire, because they had access to News Corp newspaper copy. So they started using that. So that was a blow. Then, of course, we merged, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and Nine, and now we have the announcement yesterday that Nine wants to use just the Sydney Morning Herald copy. And so Nine and News have pulled out, and that means AAP is no longer viable. The Newswire company's own report on its pending demise cited a failure of media regulation. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance boss, Marcus Strom, described the closure as a gross abandonment of responsibility by shareholders. But he also blamed Australia's federal government for its failure to address the issue of digital content aggregators. Put simply, the ease with which digital giants steal and regurgitate the work of others has helped accelerate the AAP's demise. Lax laws have also proven too tempting for international competitors, such as the Daily Mail Australia, which has made, well, let's call it rewording the copy of others, part of its business model. The loss of the AAP won't be immediately noticed by a lot of Australians. 
But sooner or later, everyone will feel the effect of its absence, whether it's the local court case that goes unreported, city council corruption that remains unnoticed, or online hoaxes that permeate social media unchecked. Where it's really going to hit, and I think most importantly, is where I'm from, which is the country where I grew up. And that is where journalism resources have been dwindling uh, for many, many years. To give you an example, I started out at a country radio station 15, 16 years ago. Now that country radio station does no independent broadcasting uh, on the programs that I used to work on. It takes a service from Sydney, three hours away. A healthy democracy can't function without journalism, but if it's to survive, lawmakers must consider if regulations are strong enough to keep important on-location journalism off life support. The Department of Transport in Texas has revealed plans for an expansion of the state capital's downtown highway. And if that doesn't sound like major news, well, Monocle's Nick Moniz is here to tell us why we should care. Nick, tell us, what is the story? Okay, firstly, Ben, a little bit offended. As someone that just bloody loves highways and cars and transit, uh, this is a very exciting story for me. But Interstate 35, which is a major highway that runs through the heart of Austin, the Texas capital, uh, is going to be expanded to help ease congestion. So the Texas Department of Transport has earmarked $4.3 billion for this expansion. General urban design logic is that increasing capacity of roads and highways typically actually just leads to more congestion. It induces, it invites more people to drive and just makes traffic problems worse. So to counter that, the Urban Land Institute, who are a a non-profit research advocacy group, have partnered with local Austin-based advocacy groups to propose an alternative plan that's a little bit more pedestrian-friendly. The key point here, I think, is where we might have expected a community group to oppose a new highway altogether. In this case, the group has got together and said, look, we do favour parks and gardens and so on, pedestrian spaces. We should be putting pedestrians first. However, if the inevitable truth is that we are going to need this new highway, well then, at least let's strap some of our own goals onto the construction of the highway. Essentially, have your highway, but we'd like to have our parks and gardens too. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the logic. I think they're accepting that in you know a, a, such a, a city that's dominated uh, by the car and in a, in a car dominant culture of the United States, and and this probably also applies to parts of Australia uh, and, and the UK as well, where where the car is king. I think it's difficult to I guess change the the narrative around you know we don't need highways anymore. So what what these guys have done, like you said, is basically they've said, well, if we can cap parts of the highway and turn that into parkland, turn that into civic spaces, and and include they're calling them stitches, but they're more or less uh, bridges. Uh, for pedestrian bikes across the highway that connect together different communities. If we can do that, at least we're still meeting some goals that, that we could meet if we just removed the highway altogether. Competing interests coming together to create an interest that's within everyone's interest. Less highways to hell and more freeways of love. Love it, absolutely. Monocle's Nick Moniz, thank you. Finally today, much has been said about the rise of sustainable fashion, but will it ever step out of the niche and into the mainstream? Our fashion editor, Jamie Waters, reports. On the runways of Milan and Paris, designers are commenting with increasing urgency on the need to embrace eco-friendly clothing and practices. Away from the catwalks, though, on high streets around the world, a different story is often being told. The sustainability drive is a good and necessary thing, 
But one of the criticisms levelled at this movement is that sustainable items, such as a one-off piece made from recycled fabrics or an organic cotton jumper, are expensive. For many consumers, the decision to shop sustainably becomes not so much an ethical decision as an economic one. For the eco-friendly movement to have greater cut-through, it needs to be widely accessible. There are some heartening signs. Secondhand shopping is being championed like never before. See, most recently, Nordstrom opening a pre-loved goods store in New York. Meanwhile, Helena Helmerson, the former head of sustainability at H&M, was recently appointed the Swedish fast fashion giant's new CEO. The brand has engaged with sustainability and recycling in the past, but many are hoping that Helmerson's background will see her home in on these topics, especially on the matter of overproduction, with increased intensity. Elsewhere, reports suggest that clothing that takes less of a toll on the environment is appearing more in fast fashion shops, although there are concerns that brands are using words like sustainable and organic as selling points without many facts to back up these claims. This can't be about lip service or greenwashing. Brands need to find a way to produce clothes responsibly while keeping costs down. The pressure is on. My thanks to Jamie Waters, our fashion editor. Elsewhere on today's agenda... New York's pre-eminent art fair, The Armory Show, opens today and comes on the heels of the Art Dealers Association of America show last weekend. Exhibitor Troy Seidman, who owns Toronto Gallery Caviar 20, says sales at the ADAA were robust despite a slightly lower attendance, which could bode well for The Armory Show over the next four days. And Canadian engineering firm Robert Allen has announced a collaboration with Abu Dhabi Ports to develop the world's first unmanned tugboats. Already a world leader in the kind staffed by actual humans, the Canadian firm has been looking for a chance to push into this new sector. The plan is for a fleet of remotely operated tugboats which Abu Dhabi Ports say will not only cut costs and boost efficiency, but also improve safety by allowing them to operate in poorer weather. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Friday.